Welcome to Leadership Bites with myself, your host, Guy Bloom. This is a leadership podcast where I have conversations with colleagues, I chat with guests, and sometimes they'll be just me talking. You can connect with me at livingbrave.com. And when you enjoy the episode, subscribe and please tell everyone. Carmen, absolutely fabulous to have you on this episode of Leadership Bites. Welcome. Thank you, Guy. It's a pleasure to be here. And I was just trying to think about the last time that we uh, we, we saw each other, but it was uh, at a conference, that, and it feels like, um, and I'm, I'm terrible at this, but I was going to say about five years ago. I don't know if that's right. or um, I'm also terrible at that, but that's about the right place. And rather than when it was, I remember you were there, you know, doing management coaching and uh, in, in your glory. And what I remember most about it, in addition to your, your coaching and your teachings, was we always had a good rapport and interaction where we would sit somewhere and, you know, sort of have our one-on-one conversation. So uh, I'm happy to see you and be here with you today. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I reached out to you. So, uh, so I would love you just to introduce yourself to an audience that, um, you know, we'll, we'll know who you work for, but not know what you do. And I'd then like to sort of get into you and what you're about. So just first of all, uh, if you could introduce yourself and, and, and what you do, that'd, that'd be great. Yes, uh, I'm Carmen Romanelli. I'm currently the global VP of sports for Getty Images, uh, which is a job some people tell me I was born to do. Um, but I actually describe myself as a visual geek. And I... Everything I've done in my life, well, not everything, but a lot of the things I've done in my life have been built around my passion for photography and visual arts. Um, so I've had, a, I've had a great career. Um, you know, before Getty Images, I was at the NBA for 11 years, heading up all of that photography. There, my responsibilities were a little broader. I did everything from some photography, but managing the photographers, the archives, the operations, to the business, to the sales. Um, Prior to that, I was uh, sort of cut my teeth in the Time Life organization, the Fable Time Life organization, and I was a manager of the Time Life Color Lab for a number of years. I'm a graduate of NYU with a degree in film and television, so again, the visual arts. And, you know, basically through this passion for visual arts, um, it enabled me to get quite uh, a career in development along the way, like at the NBA, you know, you learn so much about marketing and legal, you know, as well as what I brought to the NBA and I was able to teach them. So I always believe in a situation where there's some sort of exchange, you're offering something and you're getting something, but that's in a nutshell, how I see myself and who I am. Hmm. And, you know, come on. I remember when I came to do some work with, um, with with you guys i hadn't really understood i mean like everybody you know if you see a good photograph or a good image you might go hmm you know well that's it may connect with you but i remember there was a feature element of the conference where there were the uh, some of the probably the most senior photographers and they were just showcasing some of that imagery yeah and there was an intensity to it that just um, I think it, I don't know if it shocked me, but it really made me suddenly go, oh, there's 
as with all every company I've ever worked with, there's more to this than meets the eye. And yep. I don't just mean at a process level or a you know kind of administrative level. There's always more to it than meets the eye. But that's why would people care? You know, and and wow, that was the the image, the picture, and and what it meant. And I I don't think I still understand it as intimately as somebody such as yourself do. But it's so powerful. Well, I, I think there's a lot to that. And and before I answer it, I just want to take a moment to comment on what you just mentioned, the photographers. Um, again, in my privileged career, I've worked with the best photographers of the fabled Life magazine, Sports Illustrated in the heyday, and everything that we have across Getty Images, our news photographers, especially, um, you know, our sports, our entertainment photographers, but news photography, you know, like you saw in Life magazine that was telling the story of the world in pictures. Um, they're a particularly special breed, you know, in that, you know, they are put into circumstances where they have a, a real story to tell, right? It's not just like, you know, someone on a red carpet, you know, where you're going to get a picture of a beautiful gown or, you know, somebody running down the, the field with a ball, right? Um, you're generally safe in those circumstances. But news photographers are there, and every one of them I've ever met has this real dedication to wanting to what our motto is at Getty, our mission, move the world. And you can move the world with images because um, you look at things and, you know, first of all, there's no language barriers. Uh, you know, you're not speaking a different language. You're speaking a visual language. And there are photos out there, you know, famous photos, um, Burning Girl, this the Pulitzer Prize winning photo in Vietnam of Nick Ut. Everybody understands that photo, mm -hmm. right? And that communicates the horror of war in a situation like that. So if you look at different circumstances um, and how you communicate it, it's really in the end, the photographer's readiness and his vision and being in the right place to be able to capture a specific moment that conveys what the story is and has the impact of moving the world, moving people through those images. I was really alert to that. And with the sport photography, I think there was one photograph of a tennis player at full extension. Yeah. He wasn't just at full extension. I mean, it was like he was Superman. Yes. He was completely horizontal. I mean, he obviously was about to land, but just then it looked like he was flying from left to right across the image. And you think, and there was no, I need to save myself here. It captured his, I'm all in. It, 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 it does. It captures, I'm all in, but it also captures the tremendous athleticism and conditioning of these athletes. And I liken sport photography to performance art, Right. When you're a sports photographer, you're trained in a situation, you're experienced, you know, different lenses, you know, you know, angles and stuff like that. And you have to know the sport to a certain extent to anticipate what's going to come next. Right. But it's, it's the photographer meeting the performance within the sport 
more than halfway and being prepared. But what the photographer is experiencing, especially the way uh, the sports photographers that I've dealt with throughout my life, you know, from the very best, Neil Leifer and Walter Yost, to some of the great guys we work with today at Getty Images, right? Um, it's basically, it's basically this performance is playing out in front of you and you have to capture it, right? There's this term in photography called the decisive moment, right? And it's that moment that everything comes together to make a beautiful picture and capture something. Um, there's also, there's also when you're learning about photography, you learn about peaks. So when somebody is going to dunk a basketball, they're in a position where they, for that split second, they stop moving up and they start moving down. Yes. So that's, that's the peak of the action. So they're actually stopped there for a second. And back in the day, you used to need to use that because the film and the cameras were slow and you would get a blurry image. But now the peak is about the action because the cameras, especially with digital, lighting's improved if you're in arena. It's really a great um, eye that is necessary and a familiarity with the sport and the athlete as well. You need to know the tendencies of the athlete. And when you can do that, you can capture these images that showcase the athlete putting it all on the line, showcase the athletic ability. And you know, with that, the same way that the athlete is prepared, you know, to be in that moment and play it, the photographer has prepared to be able to capture it and understand what he needs to capture or she needs to capture. There is, isn't it? There's, there's no room for distraction in a, in a situation like that. And on a much smaller level, and it is a much smaller level I, I teach martial arts and whenever i wanted somebody or want somebody to take photographs my issue isn't the fact that they can take a good photograph it's it's do they understand the angle do they know when i want them to almost press as in look if i knew how to take the photograph and i could you know make a twin of myself i'd step over there and do it but i don't right. have camera properly and but i need you to understand the moment and the amount of people that have taken really good photographs that are completely useless because they, they're great, but they, they've missed the essence of what it is I'm trying to put in it is, is indicative of what you just said. I, that really resonates with me. That, that's exactly right. That speaks to you have to know the sport. You have to know the athletes, right? And then, you know, everything that came before that is all of the training, technical, aesthetical, you know, angles, light, all of those things. But Ultimately, that has to come together. It's a crescendo, right, of knowing everything that you're prepared for and having the performance come out in front of you, and boom. If they mix together properly, you get this crescendo, crescendo which is a beautiful picture. I like that, actually. That I, I love the idea of a crescendo. I, I like these kind of certain words that indicate what it is that's really going on you know there may have been a, a, a fight a match uh, uh, or whatever but actually this one photograph you know just like uh you know muhammad ali standing over you know the, the opponent <laughs> you know it's it's we only need the one to go well, that that was that's what the whole thing was about so let's talk about that photo because of it's uh, by my my dear friend and, and mentor neil lifer right okay and a couple of things that went into that photo. First of all, 
Neil just released a book um, about his 60 year career in photography. And the book was on boxing, right? He also spent six decades in boxing, okay? Um, and Neil is one of the best known boxing photographers, always jokes how he never landed a punch, meaning he never got the punch landing, right? Which you, which you would think is that, that pinnacle photo, but no, the Ali over Liston photo, which is well over 50 years old now, right? Um, has been the photo, Ali standing triumphantly, the arm in that upswing motion, which is signifying things. Sonny Liston laid out flat on the canvas and in between the legs of Sonny Liston is the Sports Illustrated senior photographer, Herb Schaffman, okay? And Neil got that photo, you know, this is where luck plays into it. He was on the right side of the ring. He was the junior photographer. Herb was on the other side of the ring. He was on the other, you know, took the opposite side because that's how you cover a boxing match with two guys ringside. And opportunity, but it was fortuitous, right? The opportunity was there. But if you're Herb Schaffman, and if you look at the picture, and you'll do this the next time you see it, Herb's like looking down and like he's got this wonderment on his face because he's got Ollie's butt to his camera. And Neil's got this great expression of probably one of the, probably the greatest athlete ever, right? But also that photo resonates and is, a, is as important as it is because it's Muhammad Ali. Now, if Ali would have got knocked out in his next fight and never ascended to be the heavyweight champ, never went through his stance on pacifism and you know not wanting to go to Vietnam, and not being the sort of global humanitarian that he's known to be, even maybe more than an athlete, that photo wouldn't mean as much, right? Because it's, oh, it's, you know, it's a photo of a boxer that, you know, got knocked out this next fight. You never heard from him again. So these elements come together. Um, and a lot of it is just, you know, the universal lines, when you do your preparation and you're prepared for that, for that moment, that X factor of where everything's going to intersect. It's uh, it isn't it interesting that it's an iconic photo of an icon that hasn't become one yet, and nor is the photo until yes. certain things happen. Yes, exactly. So a phenomenal photograph with the, this fortuitous moment, and yet, as you say, interestingly enough, if he had never boxed again for whatever reason, it would have just been a cracking photo. Um, but certain things have to happen yeah. um, for it to manifest its true value. And I, I kind of like that when we talk about leadership, um, these metaphors often ring true for me, but actually, you know, very often in the roles that we do, we're, we're, we're in a moment that yeah. might become iconic because when people reflect on them and they go, do you know what? I, I never forget that time that Carmen came and spoke to me and, now, the fact that, you know, back then it may have just seemed like a passing conversation, but in that person's life later on, it might manifest as a as, as an iconic moment, I guess, as, as a crescendo to that year or, or whatever it might be. So this really resonates, I think. And, and you know what? There's nothing I like better than when somebody comes up to me and tells me about a conversation that they had with me a long time ago. Mm. And 
you know, as you said, it's a passing conversation. And <clears throat> I viewed it as just the normal mentoring guidance I give out to people. But all of a sudden, you know, they come to you years later and they say, that conversation changed my life. And I'll give you a particular. I was at a wedding and uh, <clears throat> it was for one of the uh, guys that worked with me at the NBA. And when I was leading NBA photos, we used project workers that would come in. They would put stickers on physical pieces of film and duplicates because that's how you did the distribution back then. So the project workers that we would use, they needed to know basketball and they needed to just, you know, be organized and they needed to be able to work for whatever we were paying, you know, as a, as a there weren't staff, they were project workers. And there was this one young man, he was in his senior year of college and he wanted a staff job in the worst way, but he didn't want a staff job. He wanted a job. And why did he want a job? Because his parents were pressuring him, you know, oh, you're getting out of school. You got to try to get into the NBA. You got to try to do this, do that as parents tend to do and tend to worry. And I said to him, look, you, you, this is not what you want to do. He was passionate about physical education, about training and about teaching people, right? And sharing that with others. And he came to me and I said, look, I'll give you an opportunity, but this isn't where you really want to be. Knowing you, this is what you want to do. And I'm encouraging you to go out and pursue your passion, right? And see where that takes you. If it doesn't take you anywhere, come back to me, we'll talk. And when there's an opportunity, I'll try to bring you on board. He followed that guidance, finished, you know, with his degree in phys ed. 25 years later, came up to me at a wedding and he brought his wife over, Ugh. right? To, this is the guy. And I was sitting there with my girlfriend, like happy, but, you know, it, I, I didn't feel I did that much other than having a conversation the way you and I are having now. Yeah. So I think things like that, those moments, um, you know, there's a whole thing on fierce conversation and fierce. I, I never liked the word fierce in mm. things. I think <clears throat> it's about authenticity mm. and it goes back to what you and I were talking about um, before we started recording. It's, I always been able to connect with people and sort of read people. And I view that as a strength that's, that's good individually and required for leadership. Um, and basically that ability to connect with him, to understand that, gee, you're looking for a job, but your passion's here and this looks sexy because it's the NBA. Don't chase sexy, chase your passion. And I'm flattered when moments like that occur in my life. You know that you influence somebody through a simple conversation. It is um, a fascinating <coughs> kind of truth of leadership about how for some people, of course, it's that conversation changed my life for the better. Actually, what it did was it set me on a, a negative path because of that power of the voice of somebody in a senior position. And I think that um, that knowing that some of the things that we do are for the short term because the business needs it. And then some of those things that we do are for the human being in front of us. And balancing those two things, I think, is quite interesting. I look at that a little bit different. First of all, even when I talked to sports partners today that were 
you know, trying to cajole to come on board with us or customers. I'm always in it for the long term. There's a lot of steps in a journey, you know, you're going to drive cross country, you know, you might map out a plan, you might decide to deviate from that plan because this road looks interesting, right? But you start with a plan and you have certain mile markers that you want to hit, right? So, you know, it's important to have that, but it's important to be adaptable so that when things change, you can make the adjustments that you make. And that's why I say when I'm looking at things, it's, it's like a Russian nesting doll, right? You have a big vision that happens at the company level. But if you think about that, even companies are swayed. We were talking about, you know, social justice and, you know, uh, <clears throat> basically being able to step outside the company into things like diversity and inclusion and uh, eradicating racism. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when you look at that, there's always a vision that's nested down below, right? So when we do our goals and objectives, you know, it's done at the individual level, the team level, and they always coincide with the company's, you know, objectives for that particular period. So the small actions are necessary to create the big actions that are necessary to fulfill whatever the vision is. It's building a house, you know, it's brick by brick. It's, you know, a certain amount of skills and expertise have to come together. There's got to be coordination, but the architect started with the vision of the house and how it was going to sit, what it was going to look like. And then all of those small steps. So that's why I look at it as it's always the big picture and how you get there. And it's always about, in my mind, for the long term, whether it's building a relationship or hitting a target. I like that, that idea of even short-term decisions, it's actually a long-term action. And yeah. that, that's a really nice way of me actually just reframing. I may have said, look, hold both truths. But actually, it's no, just have the one, you know, even if it's a short term thing, it's in the long term, it's going to mean something. So I think that's, that's, that's quite powerful. I've maybe not thought about it exactly like that. And, and you know, in, in your journey, you know, coming across so many different characters and personalities and being in the role that you do and, and you know, the, the ones that you've had, what are those standout moments for you where, you kind of go, you know, the reason I probably ended up as the, the human being you saw before you were down to maybe that that book or that conversation or that human being. You know, give me give me a sense of those couple of key reflections of, yeah, that's probably why I'm, I'm here. Wow. I'll tell you, you know what? That's actually a very easy one for me to answer. It, it really, a lot of who I am comes from my father. An old world Italian man, born in New York City, but raised in Italy, came back to the U.S. They treated him as an immigrant because this was back in the early 1900s. And, you know, for better or worse, and it was better then, and now people would perceive it as worse. A, a, a son, the first son, especially in an Italian family, was vested in. Right. And my father, uh, you know came here, started working. He was a laborer, didn't make it 
through high school. He took, you know, night classes when he came here, but needed to earn money. And he always worked hard, but he was always an honest man. And he gave me my sense of self-worth because of how he treated me. And I think it's important um, to make sure that when you're engaging with people, you're helping them build their self-esteem and their confidence. I have five children, four boys, and my youngest is my only daughter. Um, you know, and, and I don't want this to sound like it's different for women because we're, we live in different times, but you know, when you're a father, you worry differently about boys than you do about girls. I'm sorry that's just a reality. And you know, the most important thing for me was to make sure in all my kids, I instilled that same sense of self-worth, confidence, right? That's important. You know, they, they, they have to have a, a strong idea of themselves and that they, they have value and, and meaning in life. And I think that's where it starts. And as a leader, you know, I think it's your job in engaging, communicating, developing your team, not only to pick the right people, <clears throat> but to be able to develop them in a manner where you're instilling confidence and expertise in them. Look, everybody's going to make mistakes. And the more decisions you make, the, the more mistakes you're going to make. But teaching people how to learn from that. And I think that's one of the reasons, um, you know, that you can, you can engage with people that are then willing to be loyal to you and your cause and follow your vision. Because without that loyalty and without that ability for you to get others to see and believe in your vision, you're not going to go very far. Right. So I think that's one of the things that that sense of self-worth and confidence that was instilled in me through the actions of my father. And there's something there about people want, you know, there's this idea of fellowship. Um, you know, I may have to report to you, but whether or not I'll follow you is a, is a different conversation, which almost brings down this idea of servant leadership, which is I'm not in service to you as your line manager, but I want to be of service to you. <laughs> So that 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 pronoun shift is 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 quite important. So that willingness to contribute to the needs of others, to say it's not just about you performing for me at a transactional level. I want to grow you. I want to nurture you, enable you to become more. And when I experience that, I think what I'm hearing from you there is, or when the individual experiences that, then they do follow. They want to. They're not being loyal out of need they're being loyal out of um respect and they want it's a way of paying back it's a way of investing back into the person that's investing in them i guess i, I certainly think that's part of it but i think it's a willingness right you instill a willingness for others to want to follow that but there's a great story about our space program, you know, John Kennedy announces we're going to put a man in the moon by the end of the decade, right? Competition is good. Russians launched Sputnik, US is behind, Kennedy gets out there, makes this bold speech. By the end of the decade, we're going to land a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth. So you had the vision, you had a charismatic leader, right? And then 
Kennedy is touring. I'm paraphrasing here because I don't remember it exactly. Kennedy's touring, uh, I think, Mission Control in Houston, right? And the janitor is sweeping up and cleaning up. And he, Kennedy says to him, oh, what's your job here? My job is to put a man on the moon, right? That's how you get people that buy in to a vision and really come together in a cohesive manner. You see it a lot in sports. Um, you know, you have players that can come to teams and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you know, they disrupt the team. Players that have a me psychology, they want the ball or they're upset that they're not getting the ball. But look at what happened with American football this year. Whether you love Tom Brady or dislike him, right? Tampa Bay had a mediocre team. They signed Tom Brady. They had some good assets in place. They brought in one of his receivers that came out of retirement. And through the experience and leadership that they had, their vision was to win the Super Bowl. That's every NFL team's vision, to win that Super Bowl. But now they had somebody, Tom Brady, that had done it before, that they believed in, that at his age was usually the first one at the facility every day leading by example. And now you get people that not only believe in the cause, but they have the confidence that the cause can be achieved. And they see somebody that's won at the time, seven Super Bowls, I lose count. And the, the hunger that he has to now take this team to his eighth Super Bowl and everything comes together, right? So you have differences that can make a team and, you know, get it to Coles and, and, and move in the right direction. And then you have, you know, people that can be toxic that you bring on board that, you know, start undercutting what the vision is and what the confidence is. So as a leader, you have to know, you know, how to keep people focused on it. And you have to know when to make changes if there's things that are, you know, undermining the ability to achieve a particular goal. I, I think that really tells me that I, I see this a lot where there can be lots of reasons why somebody or an organization or a senior leader is asking somebody to do something. But people are very good, even if they don't understand the intricacies of somebody else's job. They're very good, I think, at detecting or having a sense of whether or not you're asking me purely for your own need or this is about something that is yes it there is a need now but it's also part of something i.e winning the super bowl getting a, a person on the moon it's my task is to do a b and c but it's through your gen you're not asking you're not trying to get me excited so you can win and do well you're trying to get me excited because you genuinely believe in it and i think people are very good at knowing the task might be required either way, mm -hmm. but what's your reason for asking me? And I think people are very good at knowing that. You know, I completely agree with everything you're saying, but there's also the undertone here. You're talking about culture. You're talking about philosophy, right? And culture and philosophy are important. You know, you want to, like, people certainly want to win and succeed, but you want to follow a leader uh, 
the last four years aside in the U.S. You want to follow a leader that has values, that, you know, is, is an altruistic leader. I mean, up to the competition, has the confidence, has the vision, and is able to bring people together, you know, towards that vision. Um, look, briefly, look at the difference in the U.S. right now in the treating of the pandemic from what we had when somebody was saying it was a hoax, it's going to be gone in a few days, this and that, to what it became, unfortunately, and now how we have totally different leadership that are wearing a mask every place they go instead of this, whatever it was, not wearing a mask and turning it into a political statement. I mean, you look at things, how you look at things and how you deal with them openly and transparently and tell people it might be hard, but I'm going to tell you the truth, but we're going to get through this, that confidence and that optimism is very important. I think that's something I see a lot where people are trying to, and particularly in a social media world that we, we live in, people are trying to often play to all parties. And we've, we had it, where you know what's going to happen at christmas are we are we going to be locked down over christmas and so they opened up you know a lot more over christmas people would be upset if not but you know what i think if you know insert name of prime minister here and Mm -hmm. you know people can say what they like about anybody in any role and go you know god blimey i don't care which country you're in you wouldn't really want the job today but exactly. you know, if I let you out too early, people get ill. If I keep you in, the economy crashes. Oh my gosh! You know, so you know the the you know the judgment is, you know, whatever. But I thought what was interesting is in our case in the UK, if Boris Johnson had stood up, regardless of whether or not I'm a Boris Johnson supporter, is not the point, and gone. I'm going to say no, because I care about you all too much. <laughs> And if I say yes, you're going to have a moment of gratification, like eating a piece of chocolate, you know, but then, you know, just like if you eat too much chocolate, right, you're going to put on weight. If I let us do it, we're going to have three months. It's going to set us back three months, maybe even four. So, um, you know, we'll find out what you think when it comes to voting time. But right now I'm going to take four months off your sentence of being locked down and I'm going to say no. Now, of course, People would have had their reactions. But I think, actually, what people want is that you can't play to all levels. You have to stand for something. You have to. And in fact, even if I disagree with you, I may now trust your intent even more because you're not trying to play the field. You're telling me what you think. And that may actually make me even more willing to do something I don't want to do because I believe that you're being genuinely honest with me. And that, that's a big factor, I think. Well, I think that honesty and transparency is a big factor. And, you know, um, your ability to believe in the destination where a leader's trying to lead you, there has to be a destination, a goal. But when you're being fed fairy tales about, you know, how it's just going to poof, go away. There's only this many people that have it. We've got it stopped versus this is real. You can at least decide, look, I wouldn't want to be in any political leadership people for a uh, role for a number of reasons. You know, this, this situation, the, the impact on the economy, but also the media today, no matter what you do, there's a, a whole, you know, other wing of the media out there screaming that it's not right. And it's just too divisive. But you, you have to be 
willing to put it out there. You have to, you know, make, take a stance from a point of education and make it known, you know, where you stand on an issue. And then look, people are going to react to it. So it's, once again, it's communicating clearly and honestly and letting people at that point see that and do as they may, but you hope that they follow in a situation when you're trying to genuinely tell them what's better for them. It's just like having a teenager, my friend. <laughs> and you know, what? I have that with my eight-year-old where, you know, sometimes I, I've ended up saying, you know, I know you're not liking this, but I need you to understand that it's, it's just how yeah. I feel. And, well, and he gets it, you know, he goes, I don't, he actually said to me the other day, he said, do you know, sometimes daddy said, I don't like, I don't like you sometimes, but I always love you. You know, it's that you've got to, as a leader, you've got to deal with the not being liked because ultimately yes. it's a bigger story, right? Yes. And, you know, they, they come back. It's like, you're lucky you have an eight-year-old. I survived five, you know, teenagers. My daughter, my youngest, is about to turn 21 in June, right? So, you know, I survived five teenagers, okay? But you are about, in a few years, you'll become yeah. like all us, us parents the dumbest individual on the face of the earth and you don't know anything. And, you know, it's it, Mark Twain said, <laughs> Mark Twain said, I never realized how smart my father was until I graduated college. Right. And again, I'm paraphrasing the yeah, phrase, yeah. but the idea that as you mature, you see, you know, what they meant where you don't want to accept it. And also all of us have to, you know, touch the fire and get burned a little bit before we believe it's hot, even though somebody has been telling us it's hot and, and we'll get burned. So always, always interesting, but that speaks to another point. It speaks to consistency, right? Uh, you have to know when to pivot or make adjustments, but that goes back to the culture and the value and the philosophy. There's gotta be a baseline of consistency in leadership that everything's built off of. And that speaks to what you were just saying. I might not like you right now, but I always love you because you give that consistency, right? And there's also the room in there to, you know, disagree, to, to challenge and to discover on your own, you know, what works best for you. And then in a situation where there's a leader involved, it's the leader's job to focus all of that on what each person can best do to achieve the vision. And, you know, I was just, I just make notes as I go on these things, but, you know, you, your child may say like and love and you're in, you know, as a, as a team member, it might be, you know, agree, but still trust. You know, I may yes. agree, but I still trust you. I know that where you're, what we're doing here is because of your intent is good, even if I in, am in disagreement with you. So I think these things are quite um quite parallel and you know i'm being alert to time but the one thing i would like to ask you i've got one or two very quick questions so Go ahead. one of them is coming you know what's the and i'm sure you have many but if you think back to the greatest bit of feedback i ever got that maybe made you realize that something you, you did was great and you should do more of it or actually what you might have been doing wasn't serving you what's that what, what have you got there as something that made you go? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think I think it is um, 
listening to, there's a lot of times when people are trying to help you and they're trying to, you know, critique you in a manner that is meant to get you to understand things or improve your performance. So it's difficult if you're not actively listening to what's being said. And it's important how you say it, right? How the mentor is saying it. But the reality is you don't become defensive, right? You listen and you try to understand that perspective and you try to learn from it. But, you know, it's, it's also carrot and stick, right? It's like you want to be encouraged to stretch your boundaries, right? To move into new opportunities as you develop. And you want to be in a position where somebody's going to support you with guidance if you make a mistake, right? But not just be there with the big stick, slap you on the knuckles and said you did it wrong, right? So I think every time I've been able to learn things, it really comes from somebody who understands how to deliver the message and how to make it a positive experience. Mm. And also somebody, it's much more credit, uh, credible when you have somebody that's been there, right? As opposed to somebody that is not and is just pontificating from the outside. So again, when you're watching a sporting event, if you have the people that have played the game and they're talking from a perspective of the player and the game and how they're seeing things versus the announcer who's just calling the game, knows the game, but never experienced it at that level, right? There's a certain amount of credibility. So it has to do to me with how the message is delivered and who is delivering the message. Yeah, the... Um... Yeah, that's a that's a real key. There was a, a recent I can't remember his just name now, but there's a recent episode with Joe Rogan, you know, the the great podcast yep. king of kings when it comes to podcasting, and um, there was a boxing commentator who um, gave commentary on one of the fights, and probably best I can't find his name and look it up, but um, and you can just see that this person's trying to apply his knowledge from one space into another. Yep. And as and has this guy's talking with no bad intentions, with absolute you know desire to contribute. You can just see this seasoned veteran looking to the side, and you know the face of somebody that's not going to show that you're talking rubbish, but because you know his face has gone blank and there's a his eyes are getting slightly wider and wider person <laughs> continues to talk and he's you know he's trying to hold himself in this incredibly professional way but yes it's do you know what to the to the layman this may be working but because i also have insight yeah and you're not enough to, you're not big enough to go i don't really joe you're the expert here i i don't know joe tell me explain what's happening to me no i've i've got to be seen to be knowledgeable but and in doing so destroys yeah. his own credibility in that context Exactly. And that's a mistake that leaders make. Acknowledge, you know, the people around you who are bigger experts. Think. Mike Tyson has a great saying, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. So your story there is really about 
unless you've been punched in the face, you really, you know, you haven't been inside that ring. You really, you might have seen it from outside, but you really don't know what it's like, you know? So I think that's a, that's a, an excellent point. And I, again, I think that speaks to the credibility and whoever's delivering the message. So listen, comment, you know, in this time that we've had to, together, we've, I don't know exactly how long we've been chatting now, but probably around sort of 45 minutes or, or so. I, the one thing I've experienced from you, because when I speak to people, it's people I either know or I'm connected to in some way. And I could literally just, you know, we could have a 12 hour podcast if I wasn't careful. But my appetite might not be as great as the people that are listening. <laughs> but do you know what I hear from you? And I think what really resonated with me the very first time I, I met you is that, you know, you have a care, you have a, a genuine sense of understanding that, of course, you have something that you would like to get from an interaction, but your willingness to be present for others and to have a, a really honest sort of conversation that doesn't need to pretend to be professional let's actually just make it adult and let's just make it grown up and i think that's i've seen that facilitating outputs that um you know you you could go on a lot of courses to learn a lot of things but actually do you know what if you come with the right intent you don't always have to have the right words and you don't always have to say it in the perfect way but if the person trusts the essence of what it is that you're trying to do with them, then you're going to have a good conversation. And I, and I think I hear that a lot in you. I, I appreciate that because I take that as a compliment. I, I really think, you know, in any situation of leadership, it's about authenticity and it's about the obligation to care. You have to care about what it is you're doing and the people that you're doing it with. And, you know, in between, there's a lot of different space, but if you genuinely and authentically care about what you're doing and the people you're doing with, it's never about the leader. It should not be about the leader and satiating him. It should be following the leadership to achieve the vision. And a good leader is focused on the vision, not on any glory necessarily that they're going to get themselves. Mm. And, and, you know, that, that then brings me to individual leaders and their fears and how they kind of manifest sometimes as they get put under pressure. But that, that might be our second podcast as we move it. Well, I got, I got plenty of stories about that, the differences between leaders that are afraid to see you overshadow them and leaders that are confident enough that they give you the free reign and get the best out of you, yes. right? And that's, like you said, that's a whole other podcast. That's a whole other day. Well, listen, I, the, the, my takeaway phrase from there, which I really love, actually, is the obligation to care. Uh, it's, it's a real summary point of it's not just a role. It's not, it's not a task. There's an obligation. I sometimes I have to actually talk about the duty of care, but I prefer the word obligation. Yeah. You know, it's, an, it's the obligation to care. It's, it's, not a, it's not a choice. It comes with the role. And almost don't take on the job if you're not prepared to take on the role. That's right. With the responsibility comes certain obligations. The obligation to care is the top of the list. I love it. On that note, sir, I'm going to call us to uh, a halt. And I just want to say thank you. From me personally, I've absolutely loved this. And I'm sure those that are listening in will get huge value from it as well. So comment, just, just thank you so much as I uh, bring this to an end. You're most welcome. Pleasure seeing you. Pleasure having this discussion. 
I look forward to maybe doing it again soon. That definitely will do. Be well. That's it. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please share so others get to hear about us and subscribe so you keep up to date on new episodes. Also visit livingbrave.com if you want to connect with me and find out more about executive coaching, team effectiveness and changing culture. Oh, and of course you can buy my book, Living Brave Leadership on Amazon. So on that note, see you soon.